0: Thanks, Ray. All right, let me, let me pray again before I, I open this passage uh, up for us. Heavenly Father, this passage is extremely familiar, but we pray for a fresh understanding of this story of Jesus and how it applies to us. Let me pray this in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, like the Good Samaritan, probably is the next famous. Is the next famous uh, the, the after that is the prodigal uh, son. It is very well known and uh, very well loved. In fact, we've even uh, appropriated the word prodigal into our own language, uh, even in our secular language. And so when someone, um, when someone returns, having left... They're branded a prodigal. Uh, We all know a prodigal, don't we? And and in fact, we may consider ourselves a prodigal. Uh, But I want to ask you this question, and I I don't want you to answer it. I want you to think about it as we go along today, this evening. And this question is this. Who is the main character in this parable? So that's, that's a question I just want you to keep in the back of your minds for the next 20 minutes. Okay? Who is the main character in this parable? Uh, you'll have noticed that, that Ray read for us the first couple of verses of chapter 15 um, before we read verse 11 and onwards, uh, because the first couple of verses of chapter 15 set the scene, uh, uh, set the context in which this parable was told. And it's worth reading again, actually, because it reveals something uh, for us in these first couple of verses. So the first couple of verses read, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around Jesus to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now I want us to notice something here, in, in just in these two verses. You notice that the tax collectors and the sinners were gathering around Jesus. They were coming to Jesus. You Notice that? You notice also that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are not described as coming to Jesus. Presumably, they were already with him. you to keep that in the back of your mind also for the rest of this parable. And they are the ones who actually prompt Jesus to tell this story, which means the targets of this story are not wayward sinners. The targets of this story are not the irreligious, not the immoral, The targets of this story are actually the religious and the moral. Uh, Jesus never labels this story the prodigal son, does he? But he begins a story in verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. And so this story is as much about the older son as it is about the younger son. Yes, the younger son, you might have uh, already picked up, represents the sinners and the tax collectors... But the older son there represents the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And Jesus is actually painting a picture for them of two types of lost people. The first type are the openly, the outwardly rebellious, the sort of in-your-face sin of the younger son. And the second are sort of the inwardly rebellious, the more subtle sin of the elder son, who represents someone who appears to be near to God but he's actually far away. And so this parable, it's been suggested, might be better called the parable of the two lost sons. But let's start with son number one. Because son number one wanted to be his own man. He wanted to sing Frank Sinatra's, I want, sorry, I did it my way. And so he asks his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And in effect, you have probably heard before that he's actually asking, Father, I wish that you were dead. But since you aren't, I can't wait any longer. And in an intensely sort of patriarchal society, the father would have been within his rights. He would have been expected to disinherit the younger son, to dishonor the younger son, to run the younger son off. But actually, we're told there that he divides his property between his two sons. And uh, that might seem a little uh, casual of him, but actually the word there translated property is actually the Greek word bios, which means life. And so the younger son is actually asking the father to tear apart his life. There is deep emotional anguish on the part of the Father at the sheer request and then actually in his carrying that request out. Now, um, I've not heard all of your stories. I, I, I would like to hear them all, your Christian stories. Uh, but I know that some of you sitting here this evening will be able to identify with the feelings that must have been overcoming the Father as he saw his son pack and then leave. And what would have made this worse is that the father, knowing the son, uh, would have probably have had a pretty good idea as to what would happen next. The son sets off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. And I think part of the reason why the prodigal has sort of captured our imaginations is because we can imagine what sorts of things he might have spent that on. This is a, this is a classic riches to rags story. And, and, and how low can he go? We're told that after he'd spent everything, there was a famine, and so he'd begun working for a Gentile, a Gentile that is a non-Jew, feeding pigs. At this point, right, for those listening to that story for the very first time, there would have been sort of gasps from among the crowd. Because for a law-abiding Jew, this was, this was outrageous stuff. This was extremely offensive. Gentiles and pigs... And so this son had deserted his father. This son had deserted his his religion. And this son had deserted his race. And actually, the the video there uh, implied that perhaps he did taste the pig food. We're not told whether he did or not. But that's how low he goes. Uh, But in verse 17 there, he came to his senses... Well, literally, he came to himself. He saw himself. He faced himself. Uh, I'm sure that you remember this scene from perhaps your childhoods. I'm sort of reliving my childhood as I have children of my own. This is uh, from that movie, um, Snow White. And, of course, uh, the the story goes, the Queen asks, uh, who is the fairest of them all? And... The mirror says, O Queen, you are the fairest in the land. And then, of course, one day, the mirror actually says to the Queen, Snow White, O Queen, is actually the fairest of them all. Uh, and, of course, he sends her on this murderous rampage. It's basically what it is. But when this son faced himself in the mirror, he realised that he wasn't the fairest of them all. He came to himself, he he came to his senses. He was actually the ugliest of them all, he was the worst of all sinners. And so as he prepared to go home, he was prepared to be received as, as a hired servant. And verse 20 there, so he got up and went, where does he go? Not to his village, not to his home, but to his father. And we're told that while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. And you get the impression, don't you, that this, the father was, he was on the lookout. He was on the lookout. And the scene is even more striking because uh, uh, a patriarch, the head of the family, would never be seen running, Okay. Running was, was, uh, was very lowly. <laughs> the patriarch would sort of um, would walk slowly and with dignity, sort of like the way I exercise most of the time. But such was the father's joy. Such was a father's joy. And actually, I was thinking about this, perhaps the father knew that he had to reach him first. After all, if someone else were to have reached him first, they might have beat him up. They may have sent him away or publicly humiliated him for shaming his own family. Imagine how different this story would be if the older brother had seen him first. He begins confessing, but he can't even finish his his thought before his father clothes him in the best robe. In a ring, with a ring and with sandals. In other, words, in other words, he is reinstated into the family, full, fully reinstated into the family, not as a hired servant but as a son. It could have been so much different, couldn't it? But notice the order of things here. Notice that the father had compassion on the son before he recited his speech. Notice... That he embraced him before he had the chance to confess. And notice that the father accepted him before he had a chance to clean up his life, to clean up his act. This story is not about, even this first half of the story, is not about the younger son's repentance, it is about the love of the father. And the father, who had been been dishonoured and disgraced by this son of his, now honours and celebrates his return. For he declares, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He is lost and is found. He's he's, he's just rejoicing in this restored relationship. Now, um, this basic storyline, if you think about it, has been the plot line of many a story, of many a movie, Because it's just so uplifting, isn't it? It sort of brings a tear to your eye as you think about the prodigal son and his return and his father accepting him. But let me tell you that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law weren't getting goosebumps at this point. Okay, This would have been offensive to them. And so Jesus, whom if if you've read the Gospels before, you'll have known the Pharisees so often try to set up Jesus, don't they? In fact, last week's parable, they try to set Jesus up. This time, Jesus is setting them up. Because he says then, in verse 15, meanwhile, so that is, this, this story is not over, gentlemen. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. He was in the field. He was, he was where, exactly where he was supposed to be, doing exactly what he was supposed to be doing. And the sound of music reaches him and eventually the news reaches him that his brother had come home safe and sound and that his father had killed a calf to celebrate his homecoming. Now, a fattened calf would have gone a long way. It would have filled an entire village. And actually, the parable just before the parable of the the lost son, the parable of the lost coin, that actually appears only in Luke 2. We sort of skipped it today. But right at the end of the parable of the lost coin, Jesus says, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And and here we have a picture of that celebration, of that party. But the older brother became angry and refused to go in. this, this This younger son had been given this sort of red carpet treatment, whereas by law, actually, he could have, he should have probably have been stoned. And so the Pharisees here are probably waiting then for the father to come to his senses and defend the elder brother, vindicate the elder brother. But Jesus is about to turn all that they held to be true on its head. Remember last week we covered the, the theme of reversal that exists so often in the Gospel of Luke? Well, here is another example. He reverses everything they held to be true. Because if you think about it, why was the older son angry? Why does he refuse to go in? Well, he tells us himself there in verses 29 to 30. Now listen carefully here for the red flags. There are a few. I'm not going to cover them all, but there are red flags. Look, he says, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. That's a big call. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, not my brother, when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, You kill the fattened calf for him. So, why doesn't the older brother go in? Because I've never disobeyed you. And so the elder brother is now on the outer. He's now alienated from the father, not because of his wrongdoing, but because of his righteousness. See that? As one author writes, of oh, a different situation, mind you, but it applies here. He was a good man in the worst possible sense of the word. See, the elder son had saw himself as the model son. And while the, while the younger brother was clearly unrighteous. The older son was clearly self-righteous. And Jesus' point is that though one had sort of run off to a distant country and one had stayed home on the farm and slaved away, both were lost. You see, the Pharisees uh, of Jesus' day would have believed, yes, that they were a chosen people by, of, of God, but they must maintain their status and would only receive their reward if they obeyed. And friends, this is what we have come to know and the world has come to know as religion. It's what so many people outside the church and unfortunately sometimes inside the church think Christianity is all about. Moral conformity. By being good. And uh, we have a natural bias in thinking this way, don't we? Because the alternative is grace. And like the older brother, that doesn't always sit too well with us. I mean, we would much prefer to save ourselves. Um, Tim Keller wrote a book in 2008 which which really helped a whole generation of pastors to be able to see this in in Luke 15. And he he writes this You can avoid Jesus as Savior by keeping all the moral laws. If you do that, then you have rights. God God owes you answered prayers and a good life and a ticket to heaven when you die. You don't need a Savior who pardons you by free grace for you are your own saviour. And then he goes on. There are two ways to be your own saviour and Lord. One is by breaking all the moral laws and setting your own course. And one is by keeping all the moral laws and being very, very good. See, the older brother was his own saviour and his own Lord, and his own judge, and that he had declared himself acceptable and pleasing. And and friends, I suspect this is the greater danger for us too, isn't it? And it's the greater danger because you'll notice that the younger son, he knew that he was alienated from the father. He knew it. The older brother did not. See, older brothers don't go to God to ask for forgiveness because they don't, see, they don't see the need to. They don't see their need to. This illustration's a little too good not to share, but as I said this morning, disclaim, this is not a political post, okay? Um, but uh, as Trump was um, in his first campaign four years ago now, uh Christians in America asked him lots of questions as to do with his faith, supposed faith. Um, and uh, they asked him on several occasions if he'd ever asked God for forgiveness. And on one occasion he replied, "I won't try and do it in personation. Uh, but but you, 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 this, this English is great. I, I like to be good. I don't like to have to ask for forgiveness. And I am good. I don't do a lot of things that are bad. I try to do nothing that is bad. Logic. On another occasion, he assured people, look, I will be asking for forgiveness, but hopefully I don't have to be asking for much forgiveness. And it's the same sort of attitude. Now, friends, we may not claim to be without sin, okay? Okay? That may not be our issue, but so often we appeal, don't we, to our faithful service, to our ministry, to our obedience, to our sacrifice, to our generosity, to our Christian culture, to our Christian heritage even, to be the grounds on which we're accepted and rewarded. And in so doing, we're effectively become our own saviour, our own Lord and our own judge. But the parable ends here, and it ends sort of, in an open-ended way, with the father assuring his elders that his position was not dependent upon his performance. Verses 31 to 32. My son, the father said, you were always with me and everything I have is yours. But we have to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The highlight of my last week... Was discovering that on Stan, you're familiar with Stan, sort of the equivalent of Netflix. On Stan, Stan is streaming. Or uh, I think there's nine, nine seasons, the entire series of Everybody Loves Raymond. Classic. Um, remember this one? There's some some nods. And uh, <laughs> I I really do appreciate the sort of family dynamics that it portrays that inevitably exist in all sort of families to some extent. But the plot of this show is that everybody, particularly the mother, who is sort of the matriarch, loves the youngest son, Raymond, more than the oldest son, Robert. That's, that's, that's plot line. And that leads to all sorts of tensions and and jealousy. Guys, this, is, this, is, this isn't the case here. This father loves both of his sons. He's been generous to them both. And notice, importantly, that the father goes out to both of them. And he would welcome them both in. But only on his terms. Grace. So the youngest son needed to leave his life of sin behind and the oldest son needed to leave his righteousness behind and the message for the Pharisees and the, and the teachers of the law is that those who refused to embrace the ministry of Jesus to seek and save the lost would miss out on the celebration altogether because, because well they were lost as well they needed to be sought. They needed to be saved. And although they'd never left the farm, they'd left the father. Now, we don't actually know whether the elder son ever comes in, do we? We're not told. The answer is left to the listener. The answer is left to those, to those Pharisees and the teachers of the law who are were, who were standing there listening. And the answer is left to us. So one author writes, you're invited, you are invited to step up onto the stage and act out the parable's final scene. So let me ask you again, again, just just have a think about it in, in your own minds. Who is the main character of this parable? Is it the younger son, the prodigal son? Is it the older son, the prodigy? Well, friends, this story is not ultimately about either of them. It is about the man, isn't it, in verse 11, who had two sons. It's about the father's compassion and the joy and the grace that he offers prodigally to both of them. Do you know what prodigal means? We very rarely stop to think about it because we associate it with the younger son, but prodigal means extremely lavish or generous. Recklessly extravagant. So yes, the younger son had recklessly spent everything, but the father had prodigally loved both of his sons. Had recklessly loved both of his sons. It was extremely lavish and generous. And so we would do well to remember this parable, I think, not as a parable of the prodigal son, but the parable of the prodigal father, or the parable of the prodigal God. Because... In this parable, actually, it sort of retells the, the story of salvation. It retells the history of salvation, and it's a gospel in a nutshell. It is a picture of what God the Father is doing through Jesus' his Son, reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. It is a picture of God running toward us with arms outstretched, anxious to reach us first, not only to embrace us, but to intervene to ensure that we're not treated as our sins deserve. It is a picture of Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And for those of us uh, who might identify with the older brother, more so than the younger brother, it's a reminder that you can leave the father without ever leaving the farm. On several occasions, Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. As he comes out to us, in joy and in pleading. And he came. He he came to us, didn't he? he? He came down from heaven to die for you. He will, he has. He's met you well and truly more than more than halfway. See, Christianity is not about being religious, it is about being in a relationship. And now is the time, friends, whether you were the younger son or the older son, to come to him on his terms, grace, with nothing in your hands. So no matter how far you've strayed outwardly, no matter how far you've strayed inwardly, he will always welcome you home. One of my top picks this year for the readers out there has been a book that I've um, read called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. and it finishes, he finishes his book like this. Go to him. And all this means is open yourself up to him. Let him love you. The Christian life boils down to two steps. One, go to Jesus. Two, see number one. If you knew his heart, you would, wouldn't you? Let me pray for us. Father, we are weary of running. We are w- weary of trying to live up, trying to earn our own righteousness. And so we pray that this evening we might come to you with nothing in our hands, knowing that you are faithful and just and compassionate, and there is much joy in welcoming just one sinner who repents. So we pray this evening we might repent anew. And for anyone here, Father, who perhaps needs to repent of their sin or even their own righteousness, we pray that your Holy Spirit might stir them to do so. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen.